Welcome to The Healthy Beast. Today I'm joined by Hannah Deacon, whose son Alfie suffers from a rare form of epilepsy that means he was having almost non-stop, uncontrollable seizures and constantly being admitted to hospital. Hannah made the news when she began campaigning for Alfie to be given cannabis on the NHS. Two years ago she succeeded, Alfie got his prescription and there was a remarkable improvement in his condition. But the battle's far from over, as we're going to hear. So, Hannah, Alfie's nine now. What age was he when you first knew about his condition? Um, he had his first seizure. I remember the date. It was the 27th of May, 2012. He was eight months old. It's eight months old. So he's born in 2011. So he's, yeah. so he's not, he's eight. He's, he's nearly nine. nine. next week. He's coming yeah. up nine. Yeah. So he was fine as a baby and then he suddenly had a... Yeah, I mean, he was born um, fine. He started to become unwell at four months old. He started to have reoccurring infections and sickness. And I remember talking to my sister about it and she's like, oh, it's just normal. That's what, you know, babies do get infections. But I just remember feeling really worried about it. He was just seemed very, very poorly all the time. He never slept very well. I, I, I fed him myself but I struggled with that he never seemed happy from around the age of uh, four months old I went back to work when he was six months old and I remember coming home on the day that he had his first seizure and my mother-in-law had looked after him and she said he's been a bit odd today he seems to be staring and I thought you know I don't know I just dis- I just disregarded it and I thought oh she's just being my mother-in-law and being a bit silly probably and I didn't worry about it but then I put him in the garden in his play pen and he f- was sitting up and he just fell backwards and I thought oh well, you know again I disregarded it I think if I'd have known what was happening to him you know I would have took him straight to hospital but basically I think he was beginning to have seizures because he was losing consciousness very quickly and that night we put him to bed he went to sleep and then I was woken at mid- it was about midnight with him screaming and I ran into him and he was having um, a tonic-clonic seizure, which is where your arms, your legs move. I switched the light on, he was going blue. The most terrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen anyone have a seizure. It's not in our family. It was very frightening. So this was right away after the f- he'd had the first one when you weren't there and then had another yeah, one? Yeah, he... he- yeah, he basically, Alfie has a condition that clusters with seizures. So they start with very small seizures and they build up and build up and build up. So what he was having during that day were absences. And I just didn't realise because I've never seen a seizure before. And obviously when he had his first, the big tonic clonic seizure in the night, he was already probably having seizures during that day and we just didn't realise. So like small ones building small up and they to they build a... up to a very inflammatory response. Yeah, his epilepsy... Um, produces a, just a very big inflammatory response and he had this seizure. Um, we took him straight to hospital and his seizures just got worse and worse and worse. We were actually told by a doctor oh, it's probably a febrile seizure not to worry about it. Um, but it, it was very quickly obvious that Alfie was very seriously ill. He was having seizures back to back in the end um, and they followed a protocol which every hospital has an epilepsy protocol um, and basically we're using a lot of anti-epileptic pharmaceuticals he he was having them all and nothing was happening to him he was carrying on having these huge seizures um, and in the end we went to our local hospital which is just a little uh, town hospital and and by the Sunday it was a Saturday night that it happened by the Sunday evening Alfie was put on a life support machine and sent to an intensive care unit because he just wasn't responding to treatment unfortunately so yeah it was a very very frightening experience and even now I get you know I get a lot of trauma from thinking about it because it's just it was incredibly frightening to to watch someone you know your child that you love more than anything go through something so horrendous it's really hard to it's just hard to imagine for mm. anyone or any parent to to think what that must be like yeah. 
It was shocking. We ended up going to an intensive care unit at Stoke Hospital where we were for two weeks. They didn't have a neurologist at that hospital, unfortunately, for the first week. Um, because I don't know why, actually, but we, they were taking advice from Birmingham Children's Hospital. They did a lot of tests on him. Everything was negative. We were told by the, the paediatrician at that hospital that Alfie had, they thought, as some sort of viral infection that was causing this catastrophic onset of seizures. Um, I didn't didn't believe that. I didn't accept that. Um, he was just getting worse. He, in the end, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't swallow. He couldn't do anything. So he re- remained on an on an um, sort of induced coma. Um, I remember when they had take because they kept trying to take him off the induced coma to see if the seizures had stopped. And I remember at one point they couldn't get any more veins in his body, so he, they had to put a needle into his neck. And while he was awake, I mean, he just went through hell. You wouldn't put an animal through what he went through as an eight-month-old baby. It was incredibly hard. Um, And in the end, after two weeks in that intensive care unit, I actually went to the guy that ran the unit and I just said, you're not winning. You know, we need to be somewhere specialist. And I'm from Brighton originally. So, you know, I said, if you can get us a bed at Great Ormond Street Hospital, that would be good because I can see my family and we can get more support. So we were very lucky to have got a bed at the intensive care unit at Great Ormond Street Hospital where they did every test again on him. They did something called oliclonal bands, which is a very intricate test where you take CSF, so brain fluid and blood at the same time. And they basically found that even though his viral markers were normal, he had a massive load of um, white blood cells in his body. And that's when they said, well, we're going to try intravenous steroids because we think he's having some sort of huge immune function, misfunction, uh, which is causing the seizures. And they gave him intravenous methylprednisolone, which is a steroid, and, and the seizures did stop but he was having seizures for three and a half weeks. I mean, he was lucky to be alive. So this is all in the same short period of time mm. when he's eight yeah. months old. Yeah. And and these steroids, presumably, this is like the the biggest guns they have kind of thing. Yeah, to, well, to we, he was, yeah, he, he, they tried, I think it was about 12 anti-epileptics with him, which didn't work. They didn't work because his brain wasn't the problem. His immune system was the problem. So his immune system was malfunctioning and causing the epilepsy. So the epilepsy is a byproduct, let's say, of an immune dysfunction. So when they gave him the steroids, steroids suppress your immune function. That's why they're given when people have asthma attacks or allergies or anything like that, because they suppress that immune response. With Alfie, that's what was happening to him. So they diagnosed him with immune-responsive epilepsy at that point. It wasn't until he was five that we had the diagnosis of PCDH19. The reason it took so long for that diagnosis is that it's a condition that usually affects girls only. So he's one of nine boys in the world that we know diagnosed with this condition. So this PCDH19, you say this is this one extremely rare form. Yes, it's has. it's very rare in girls. It's about 20,000 girls in the whole world have it. So again, quite rare. It basically consists of clustering seizures, so very aggressive seizures that come in clusters so they don't seize every day, but they can seize in these big clusters of seizures, which is what we've seen in Alfie. Uh, mild to severe learning uh, difficulties and, and can, in some cases, be severe behaviour problems, like aggressive, violent behaviour as well, because it's of the way it affects the brain. There is quite a you know not much research into his condition at all because unfortunately it doesn't make anyone any money to create treatments for people with such rare epilepsy which I think is very sad so yeah when we were told about his diagnosis by his neurologist he just said well we hope that he'll get better with age but other than that we need to just treat him with steroids every time he has a cluster and this was when he sorry to interrupt that was when he was five so he'd He'd been given this diagnosis. Mm. And what had his health been like in the four years 
Well, um, his first cluster, as I said, was when he was eight months old and we were in hospital for four months. We had to be moved back to our local hospital and he was weaned off. He was on morphine. He was on lots of drugs. Uh, We had to wean him off all of those, which took about six weeks. And then he was put on a pulse steroid. So every other day of steroids and a a small dose of an antiepileptic called Keppra. And we were sent home and he was fine. So we thought, well, maybe it was an isolated incident. Maybe it was a viral load that went wrong. And we started under doctor's advice to wean the drugs that he was on. And then three weeks after that, he had another cluster, which was in the December 2012. And that carried on happening every eight months, whether he was medicated or not, he was having these very severe clusters of seizures. And every time we went in to, we ended up going to Birmingham Children's Hospital, um, they said, we don't want to use steroids. You know, using steroids repeatedly in anyone is very dangerous. And he was having having thousands of milligrams of methylprednisolone, they can cause um, organ failure, psychosis, uh, brittle bones in older people. You know, they're very dangerous drugs. And obviously, they saved his life, but they're not something that doctors want to use repeatedly in children. But it was the only thing that worked for him. So that happened until he was four. And then when he was four, his clusters just came every three weeks out of nowhere, for no reason. He just got worse. So it went from every eight months to every three weeks. Yeah, and I thought every eight months was bad. (laughs) And every three weeks was terrible. And we were just surviving you know I was taking me or or my partner Drew were taking him into hospital in an ambulance when he started having seizures it was always in the night so it was at two three in the morning we'd be fast asleep and we'd be woken with him screaming having a big tonic clonic seizure and it was an emergency to get him to hospital to get the steroids into him to stop the seizures because that was the only thing that worked and then by age five they were coming every week so he just every got week. Yeah, every week, every seven, sometimes 10 days at the very most. But I was taking him to hospital, to our local hospital. We would have to hold him down, get needles into him, get drugs into him. He would have a cluster for maybe three or four days where we'd give steroids every day and then they'd slowly calm down and stop. We'd go home, we'd have three or four days of severe violent behaviour where I would be scratched, punched, kicked. Um, he wanted to be with me because I was his mum, but he also couldn't stop hurting me because his brain was very upset and also steroids cause severe side effects like psychosis, but also um, hitting, punching, screaming for no reason. Just it, He was just so ill and I just... You know, I got to a point in 2016 where I, did, I just didn't want to live. <laughs> to be honest, I didn't want to be the parent of such a poorly child. It was really very hard. It must have been awful. Mm. So, because by this, this is who's five at this point. At this point, you, there's kind of no normal life. No, I mean, I had, I was all. very blessed to have a, a daughter when he was three. Um, at that time, he wasn't, you know, he was having seizures every eight months. And I, I wanted desperately to have a normal experience. You know, I didn't go to the baby groups with Alfie. I didn't, I didn't make the mum friends that mothers do because I isolated myself because I was, fr- I was embarrassed. I was frightened. I didn't want people to know that my child wasn't normal like theirs you know it was really hard I mean it makes me feel upset thinking about how difficult it was because it was so hard and I I live somewhere where I didn't grow up so I moved to Kenilworth in Warwickshire where my partner's from so you know I thought I'll have a baby and then we'll meet I'll make new friends and it just didn't work out like that so when I had my daughter Annie um, I'm very blessed that that experience was was very good and she's a very healthy little girl but as she got older and he got more sick, I couldn't leave them together on their own. You know, he would be, he would try and hit her or hurt her. He didn't know what he was doing. You know, he was just high on drugs and 
and uh, seizure, you know, the results of the seizure. So, you know, I, I never blamed him, but it, I had to make sure my daughter was safe. And that was very, very difficult on my own when my partner was working full time to try and keep a roof above our heads, you know, and, and my mum and his mum would come and help us. But obviously they're older and I wouldn't didn't want them to be hit by Alfie. You know, it was, it was just horrendous. And I socially withdrew myself from my from life completely all I was doing is looking after Alfie I didn't have a social life I didn't have a job I didn't I didn't do anything I used to I where I used to live there was a school at the end of my road and I used to watch all the mums take their kids to school and I just desperately wanted to be one of those mums just normal you know just take my child to school um and I did I couldn't and it was yeah it was really hard must have been so hard and and at this time there as you say, they were worried about the amount of steroids he was taking, yeah. but you didn't have an alternative. So when you said no, the- no, we had no alternative, and that's as I say, when we were given the diagnosis of PCDH19, our doctor just said we hope that he'll grow out of it, or not grow out of it, but grow because it's a genetic condition. It's also spontaneous, so I don't have the gene mutation, nor does his dad. So. It just happened, which again is so difficult. I'd rather not know, to be honest, because having a genetic mutation that just happened could have been my fault, could have been my partner's fault, could have just been fluke. They said it could have been an infection that triggered the genetic mutation. It could be anything. We don't know. And that's really hard to deal with. There's no nothing that we can do, you know. And that's, as I say, in 2016, when I became very traumatised, but also very, very depressed. And I thought, well, I can't live my life like this anymore. And I'm really grateful through support of family and friends and, um, you know, people that I met on this journey that I managed to fight for him. And I'm so grateful that I did, because if I hadn't, I don't think he'd be here. And when your back was against the wall like that and you felt, I can't cope with this anymore, had you heard about cannabis as a potential treatment? No, no. I mean, we, we didn't have any support at the time at all as I say and I think that's why it was so difficult we didn't have a social worker we didn't have respite other than Zoe's place which Alfie used to go to once a week which was a wonderful place for children with chronic long-term you know disease you know and that that was very difficult not having that support so yeah but I got to I don't know why I just got to a crossroads where I thought well I can either take the the road and drive to Beachy Head and (laughs) drop off the edge which I did fantasize about you know I'll be completely honest I did I just wanted it to end you know the only time I got any respite from my pain was when I was asleep and that wasn't often because Alfie never slept because he had such severe brain problems you know he he just couldn't sleep and I just thought I'm gonna fight because actually I know him you know he's my baby he was inside me I know him better than anyone and doctors can't help me so I've got to fight because I, I got to a point where I thought if he does die I'm never gonna forgive myself if I just let it happen you know if I just trusted everyone and trusted everything they said to me because actually doctors to be fair to them were saying to me we don't know so I thought well if they don't know I could try can't I you know as his mum and and Andrew wanted to do the same so yeah I just went online and just thought well what do steroids do you know in layman's terms I'm not a doctor but it's it's clear what we know what steroids do they reduce the aggression of your immune system so if you're having a massive immune response they stop that so I thought well 
that's that's what's happening to him. How can I replicate that in a natural way? And I started to research, you know, natural modulators of the immune system and cannabis came up and I thought, well, that's really interesting. And I knew cannabis as something that people smoked to get high, you know, at college or universities <laughs> when people start to do that sort of stuff. And so I dismissed it at the beginning and I thought, well, it can't be medicine because it's a drug. But then I was very lucky to find some YouTube clips on with Professor David Nutt talking about the endocannabinoid system and the entourage effect and how cannabis works in you know basic terms and then I joined a lot of groups on social media and I spoke to parents all over the world I watched a Charlotte's Web video Charlotte's Web it, it was started after a little girl called Charlotte Fiji who had Dravet syndrome and her mother used um, CBD with her and she stopped having as many seizures so and I watched this film where there was four or five mums just talking about their kids and how ill they were and how they do CBD and how it stopped and at the time I I was just like, this is amazing. You know, this could be something that Alfie could try. And so I just felt that it was my job to be empowered and to learn. So I did that. I did as as much research, research as I could. And then I went to see Alfie's neurologist at Birmingham Children's and I said to him, have you heard of using medical cannabis as a treatment? for epilepsy and he said oh well there is a there is a trial a cbd only pharmaceutical called epidiolex and he said i'll try and get you onto that trial so i said fine great um we were refused that trial unfortunately because alfie's um epilepsy didn't you know didn't fit their criteria because obviously it's so rare they weren't doing research in those conditions so i thought well okay well I'm going to do it myself and and that in January 2017 we tried another anti-epileptic that made Alfie so poorly that he was in hospital the whole time for the whole month and I just thought well this is enough I'm not giving him any more pharmaceuticals because they just make him worse they just make him poorly and I don't want to give him steroids anymore because they're going to kill him basically oh well that's what I felt and that's what I've been told by doctors so um, in January 2017 that's when we set up our Alfie's Hope campaign we set up a Facebook page and um, we set up a change.org petition asking Theresa May to allow us to have medical cannabis on the NHS and we started to fundraise obviously I was a full-time carer earning £60 a week which is what full-time carers earn which is not enough and my partner is a you know a self-employed landscape gardener we didn't have any money so we decided to fundraise and we felt that you know that was the only way we could get abroad I looked into going to places like Canada and America and because Alfie was in hospital every week we just we wouldn't we'd have had to have raised half a million pounds to do that because he would have just been in hospital the whole time at the beginning and if it didn't work you know I, I just we couldn't get insurance for him so then we looked at Holland um and at at the time, obviously, we were still in the EU in 2017 and um, we could get our E111 for emergency care, so we would get free care. And I just thought, well, that's the place to go. And I was very lucky that I've got a Dutch friend who I've met in Kenilworth who contacted the hospital in The Hague and spoke to a neurologist directly and who was doing a very small trial in medical cannabis on children with refractory epilepsy and she said that we could go on the trial so we it, we were very lucky. <laughs> you very so you arranged lucky. it all before you went out there. Yeah, so yeah, and we went in September 2017 to live in the Hague. Me, Drew, Annie, and Alfie. Oh, wow. <laughs> didn't know anyone. Took the boat because I didn't want to fly with him. I was too frightened to fly with him, just in case he didn't like it. And we were on a plane. <laughs> I thought I'd rather do a boat. So, yeah, we we got a boat to the Hook of Holland on our own. Packed my car up, and yeah, it was terribly frightening. But you know, I felt like I was doing something. I was doing something, you know, I wasn't sitting at home thinking, my God, my child's going to die, what am I going to do? You know, I was doing something active to help to help him to be well. And that was so empowering and gave me hope. And hope for families like mine is what keeps you alive. 
And when you went out there, did you have a plan of how long you were going to be there or...? No, I think if we'd have had a plan, I wouldn't have gone because <laughs> I would have been like, oh my God, what are we going to do tomorrow? No, we just had the plan to see the neurologist, start the treatment, see if it worked. And if it worked, then we decide what to do. So you went there and the, was the plan to observe him and when, when he has a seizure, then give the medication or just no, go no, and No, no, we just started straight it away. straight away. Yeah, he was still on uh, two anti-epileptics, uh, which didn't work. Um, but we we knew that, if he was on, because we had weaned them off and he was going about every week and if we added a little bit of anti-epileptic and he usually goes about nine days, so we got an extra two, few days and we just thought, well, that would give us a chance to get to Holland without him having a cluster right. the night before we go or anything. So, no, we got there, we saw her on the 19th of September 2017. She prescribed a, a Bedrolite, it's called Bedrolite, it's a CBD product. It's high in CBD, very low in THC, but it does have THC in there and also other minor cannabinoids and terpenes. So when you look at it, it's very dark green, it smells of cannabis, it, it's as close to the cannabis plant as possible. It's not been synthesised or played with. It's just based, the plant's been grown, it's been made into an oil and that's that. So I remember smelling it and thinking, oh my God, it smells so much. It just smells like cannabis. You know? Yeah. So they gave him in a just a Drops, drop form that yeah. he put under the yeah, tongue. Yeah, so she gave us a prescription. We went to the pharmacy in The Hague, the Transvaal Pharmacy, um, and picked up, yeah, the bottle's a little 10ml bottle and it, it come, you have a little 1ml syringe and you, we started at a very low dose so it was uh, two drops three times a day to start with and every week you go up on the dose so medical cannabis is something that works on the endocannabinoid system so the receptors in your endocannabinoid system are in charge of homeostasis in your body so they overarch your dopamine receptors your serotonin receptors so they're in charge basically they're in charge of keeping your body in homeostasis so if the endocannabinoid system which produces its own cannabinoids like an andamide is malfunctioning then you can get so many symptoms which is why when doctors say oh this can't be you know a one-size-fits-all treatment for everything well actually it can because the way it works on those receptors if you haven't got a good functioning endocannabinoid system it can cause all sorts of symptoms so but you have to dose it very slowly because it has to build up on your receptors and if you dose too high it can actually not help your symptoms because you're going too high on cannabinoids on the photocannabinoids that you're trying to replace your own cannabinoids with so it's a very intricate holistic art and I've learned that so we went very slowly and as a parent who's got a child with epilepsy that's really difficult because you just want it to stop want to, you, you want, want it to, to be them, okay give them more especially yeah, when yeah. you know he's been having such um mm. powerful pharmaceuticals yeah. that could be far worse you were kind of yeah. really tempted to give him a heart I, I was just like I just wanted to be quick but she was yeah. like no every week extra drop extra drop every week so we did that so the first six weeks he was still going to hospital every week um, which was frightening but actually we we're very lucky everyone spoke English the the health service in Holland is excellent you know we were very very well looked after so we were very blessed in that sense um but I remember six weeks in he was still going to hospital every week and actually I th felt like his clusters were getting worse and I remember saying to the doctor I think this is making him worse and she was like just be calm just wait just wait because at that point he's on such a low dose and you know, you, you, were you kind of thinking we I wish think he had the other the other medicines at this point? Well, he was having steroids still. Every time That's he had okay. a cluster, they were giving him steroids because, you know, he whenever he has seizures, he'll always need steroids because that's the only way to stop them. 
Um, so the cannabis wasn't replacing it as emergency medicine. It, we were just trying to stop the seizures from coming. Um, but yeah, six weeks in, he he was on 150 milligrams of CBD at that point and it still wasn't, he was still having seizures. And then I remember, um, which I, I remember it really well because I was very upset. And I went, he was in hospital with Drew and, and Annie and I went out to get some food for us. And I remember just pulling to the side of the road and I just, cried I was just like please you know please work and I remember just you know I know it sounds a bit mad but just praying to the universe like please come on you know give me a break here I'm trying really hard to do everything and after that he came out of hospital and he went 17 days without a seizure and I just thought oh my god you know it was just amazing that was the longest he'd gone for a long time a long time yeah and it was it was we just noticed cognitively he was interested in books, he was interested in his sister, he was interested in playing, in stuff that he'd never done, you know, been interested in before because he'd been so poorly. And we carried going, carried on going up on the, the bedrolite. We also added in a bit of ex, tiny bit of extra THC, just two drops a day, because the THC binds to receptors in your brain, which is why we think it works to reduce refractory epilepsy. Um, it, but it's really important to give it with high CBD because high CBD is antipsychotic, so you won't get any high from THC if you take it with CBD. Um, but yeah, I know he just carried on, and, and by January 2018, he'd gone 41 days with no seizures. And when he days. yeah, and when he did have a cluster, he had I don't know three or four seizures. We had to give him one dose of steroids, and we'd be home within 24 hours. You know, so it was very, very different. It wasn't this catastrophic hundreds of seizures. It wasn't pumping him full of rescue meds and steroids and all that sort of stuff. You know, we, I have to accept that my child has a chronic illness and I have to accept that pharmaceuticals have their role to play in preventing him from being, from suffering and from having the seizures. But at the same point, He's been on a lot of pharmaceuticals and still been having seizures. He's now on medical cannabis with a very small amount of pharmaceuticals every day and he doesn't have seizures. And that's the thing. It's about balancing that and giving him the quality of life. It's You know, I've had to accept that his chronic condition is not going to go away. He has a genetic malformation. What we can do is give him a good quality of life. And that's what medical cannabis has done for him. So, yeah, you know, by February 2018, that's when we decided to come home and fight our cause. So what's his quality of life like now? Excellent. I mean, he's at sc- he's just started a special school. He was in mainstream school, which we pushed for, but he was becoming isolated from his peers in the classroom. So, yeah, he started special school. He loves it. He goes swimming. He has forest school. They're excellent with him. He's very happy. He's getting the bus to school every day, which... I found really hard at first because I'm so protective over him. But I need to know that it's, you know, I need to remember that it's really good for him to become independent. And and hopefully, you know, I think he will always need care for the rest of his life. He will always need support. He's very vulnerable. He's at risk in that sense. Um, But he can have a very happy life if well supported. Well, that's amazing to hear. Mm. But there was, between this, uh, this trip to Holland and now, there have been a a lot of hassles and this is where your kind of tireless (laughs) campaign has come in so you were in holland you were getting it on you were getting it for free well we were paying for it yeah we paid for the medicine and we we, we were getting emergency care for free so we had to pay for the medicine yeah but you paid presumably a lot less than than it can be to 
Uh, well, we were paying 178 euros a bottle, so it's still quite expensive. Still Hence expensive. why we had to um, fundraise because yeah, okay. we were going through in the end about one bottle every five days. So it's a lot of okay, money. Okay, so a significant cost that you had to yeah. get through fundraising. Mm. So what did you think you were going to stay there indefinitely then or you, no. you then decided to come home to the UK? Yeah, I mean, I remember we had a few thousand pounds left and Drew and I talked about it and I said, you know, we could fight it from Holland, but actually what impact are we going to have? None, really. And and I didn't want to live in Holland. You know, Holland's a lovely place. The Hague's beautiful, but I didn't have any family there. I had no friends. I don't speak Dutch. <laughs> I did try and learn it going to the supermarket and everything, reading the packaging and stuff, but it's a very hard language. You know, and, and fundamentally, it's my right to live in the country that I was born in with my child. And I just yes. thought, well, you know, I want to go home and I'm going to fight this. So we had to make the very difficult decision to take Alfie off the medicine because we would have been breaking the law because it contained THC if we brought it into the country. Uh, we we did put him on a CBD high CBD product that was legal in the UK to try and keep the wolf from the door. Um, And we came home and we were very lucky. Uh, My mum had contacted the APPG on drugs policy and spoken to Baroness Molly Meacher, who put us in touch with Endarpain. Endarpain is a lobby group on medical cannabis um, on prescription, you know, on the NHS. And I remember meeting Peter, who is the director of Endarpain at my mum's house within a few days of getting home. And he said, you know, we're very happy to support you. The thing is, I knew what I wanted to do. Fundamentally, I wanted to lobby Theresa May to allow to get her to allow my son to have a or son's doctors to have a license to prescribe because cannabis was still a schedule one drug um, of no medicinal value in the UK so a doctor would need a license a schedule one license to prescribe for him so we knew what we wanted to achieve how that works I didn't know you know I'm not a strategist I'm not a PR person I'd, I'm just a mum who wanted to help their child so that's why we needed end our pain Um, So they were the strategy behind everything. They got us the interviews and I went on and did them and spoke from the heart, basically. I was desperate. And my first interview was 26th of February 2018 on BBC Breakfast, where I remember the producer before I went on, Jilly, amazing woman. She said, you know, just be honest, just be open, tell the truth. You know, don't worry about it. Just, you know, sock it to them, basically, because this might be your only chance. And I did. And I was really open. And I just said, you know, this medicine is available throughout the world legally. Why is it not available in one of the most sophisticated or what should be one of the most sophisticated economies in the world? You know, we should have this medicine available to people who are suffering. And I remember the quote, because the Home Office were dealing with it, because it was a Schedule 1 drug, not a medicine. And Nick Hurd issued a statement from the Home Office, because he was the Minister of Fire Policing at the time, saying um, that, you know, whilst they, you know, empathised with our situation, that cannabis had no medicinal value and they wouldn't be making it available to me. So that was the point where we began. Um, in the February. Um, We then met with the Home Office in the March and we were very lucky. Our MP at the time was the Attorney General, so that really helped. So he supported us fully as well, which was great. He's a Conservative MP. Um, We went with him and my mum and my partner and met Nick Hurd and and all the lawyers and the drug policy people and everything. It was, you know, really intimidating for us. And they said, you know, um, you can have Epidiolex for Alfie. And I said, well, I don't want Epidiolex. It's not the same medicine. I was, I asked for Epidiolex before I went to Holland and I was refused that. I don't understand why now it's appropriate. 
we found a medicine in Holland that works for him and that's what we want. And I was standing firm on that. And we also had a full report from our paediatric neurologist in English saying, you know, how Alfie was when he got there and how he was when he left. And that's evidence, you know, that is evidence. And I'm, again, I think, I suppose this has opened up the whole idea of what is evidence, because in this country, it seemed, you know, nice make the decisions on whether medicines are cost effective or have enough evidence to prescribe. And they only allow... Um, the use of randomised controlled trials. But actually, if you've got thousands of people using a medicine and they have an effect of benefit, then that may be an anecdote. But when does an anecdote become fact? When everyone is saying the same thing. And I think that sort of observational data is really, really important with cannabis because it's it hasn't had our randomised controlled trials because it's been prohibited for the last 60, 70 years. So... You know, that's that's the position we were starting from. And I remember giving the report to the drugs policy people at home. And they said, oh, well, she's Dutch. You know, she's not English. And I said, but <laughs> Dutch people aren't. What you know, Dutch, Dutch doctors are probably <clears throat> it's just as highly trained as English doctors. And, I, you know, that was the attitude that we were facing. It was very, you know, sort of hostile, really. So they were saying you could have one form of it that you that had that you didn't want. Well, it was a CBD. Uh, Epidiolex is a CBD only pharmaceutical. It's not got any other compounds in it apart from a very low amount amount of THCV, which is classed as a contaminant. You know, it's not the same as Bedrolite, and and I think that again, doctors and MPs don't understand that. They think oh, it's CBD, CBD, CBD. It's not. You know, Bedrolite is a full spectrum plant-based product whereas Epidiolex is a pharmaceutical single compound product it's very different and I wasn't prepared to risk my child's you know the 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 wellness I'd seen in him I wasn't prepared to risk that by trying something that wasn't the same I don't see why I should. (laughs) How long have you been back in the UK now and you're getting no's and you're and Alfie's presumably his conditions well his condition deteriorated he was in hospital again again every 10 days having seizures um yeah I mean the beginning of March that was a blow you know home office wouldn't help us we then went uh and handed our change.org petition into Theresa May on the 21st of March 2018 before that we had an organized event um at Portcullis House with about 125 MPs came to see us and we asked them to sign a letter to Theresa May saying that you know could we be allowed to apply for license because up until that point only pharmaceutical companies could apply for a license for research um and it was really well attended i remember actually speaking to pretty patel was there which i was you know obviously before she was the home secretary but she was really interested in what our story which is why i find it shocking now that we still don't get the help that you know the families they get the help that they should get but you know that was a really good event and then we took our petition um to theresa may um and we knocked on the door and the door opened and we were invited in, which was amazing. That doesn't happen when you give petitions in usually. And my MP was there, Jeremy Wright, and so was Sir Mike Penning, who's a big supporter of End Our Pain. Um, he used to work in the Home Office of Theresa May before she was Prime Minister. And Nick Hurd was there as well. And we went and had um, tea. And I remember Alfie was climbing all over the sofas because he'd just come out of a cluster. He wasn't overly well. And Annie was there. And it was just the most surreal situation to be invited into number 10 for tea and we were sitting just talking and the door opened and Theresa May walked in and I just was like oh my god you know I didn't know she was coming and she said oh I've heard about Alfie I've seen the media that you've done um, and we've discussed it and we're happy for your doctors to apply for a license to prescribe this product on the NHS 
So which you got the was, thumbs up right from the top then? Well, yeah, right from the top. So that must have been amazing. Were elated, were you? Oh, I was absolutely elated. And it wasn't a yes, obviously, but it was a massive step forward. And I remember walking out and there was, um, you know, TV crew and people waiting to see us. And I remember this lady saying to me, is it a win? And I was like, well, it's half a win. I think so. <laughs> Let's hope so. You weren't sure at the time. Well, no. Um, we then went back to our NHS doctor, who was very supportive. We were very lucky to have a very supportive NHS doctor. And he, unfortunately, was blocked from helping us any further by his trust, which was really sad. That's when um, Endar Payne found Professor Mike Barnes, who is a neurologist, um, a private neurologist at the time, um, to support our application. So he, along with our GP, who is an NHS GP, our NHS paediatrician and an NHS neurologist from a different trust, um, created the application with the Home Office because this has never been done. So the Home Office was starting from scratch. We were starting from scratch. What I remember speaking to Nick Hurd right at the beginning. He said, we're going to do this application. We're going to support you. But what we ask of you is no media attention on it. And I said, OK, fine, you know, you're doing, I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back, you know. And also, I like to feel that if people don't agree with you, the best way you change their mind is by working with them. I don't believe that the way you change people's minds is by forcing them to do things. It's about working collaboratively and trying to get them to understand your point of view. So I was very happy that the Home Office wanted to work with us, create this license application. And Mike worked tirelessly for months with them for free. I mean, he was amazing, did so much work for them. They had people visit him at home um we had a pharmacist we had an importer a very uh, you know a lovely man called john an importer contacted us after seeing us on the news and said i i import specials all the time i'll import for you our, our local pharmacist who owns a local private pharmacy caroline she contacted me and was like i'll help you you know we felt so blessed that there were people that put alfie's needs ahead of you know everything you know and that was really special for us so we did that work with the home office for three months um i think reticently from them they were very frightened about this you know what we have to remember is that all these people working in these positions have been told that cannabis is dangerous for years you know there's been a wonderful marketing campaign on the the dangers of cannabis and to try and undo that overnight is very very difficult so we were working against that I think that stigma all the time by June 2018 it was clear that we were we were getting to a sticking point and I had done as I was told I didn't seek any media attention well, I just wanted to ask you about that bit why mm. why did, did they say they'd help you but no media attention I think well I think to keep me quiet <laughs> I think in hindsight now I mean I was quite naive at the time I think in hindsight it was just to keep me quiet they didn't want me to have attention from the media they didn't want me to cause them pressure you know I I, it's, kind I, of I had, the, it's kind of what the media is for. Exactly. Isn't it? Exactly. It, to, if if people, if if sick children need help, I mean, mm, I can't think of a yeah. better reason for having a media. Yeah, really. Exactly. And I think in hindsight, I should have said no. I should have just said, do the job yeah. <laughs> quickly, <laughs> and then I'll, I'll, you know, then I won't need to go to the media. But I agreed because I probably was a bit naive and. You know, I was dealing with people in the government. I'd never done that before. You know, <laughs> it was a big, I mean, I, overwhelming I'm, experience. I mean, I, I'm a journalist and therefore naturally suspicious. And to me, it, it, it seems to fit with what actually has happened. And this is a good point to come up, come on to, I guess, is that, you know, Alfie got his subscription and two years later, no one else is getting them. Mm. Mm. So 
Yeah. So he, so I, I, we, we fast forwarded a bit. So eventually they, they said yes. And ha- yeah, I mean, ba- basically, so Theresa May had said yes, and then eventually it got. Yeah. So we worked with the Home Office for three months. Then um, it went stagnant. Then we had a meeting with the Home Office, with our doctors, with our MP in Westminster, and they said, right, we'll give you a decision on Monday. Yes or no? I then got a phone call on the Monday, which is the 18th of June, saying from the um, Nick Hurd's chief of staff saying, oh, there's just a few more things. And I just lost my temper. And I was like, no, my son is sick. You are messing me about. I'm not having it. And the next day I went on to Radio 4 Today programme with John Humphreys, who was actually incredibly supportive. He used to give me a big hug every time I went in. I went in a few times to see him. And he just asked me about the meeting. And, and the meeting with Theresa May was, I, you know, she looked me in the eye and she said, I will help you. I will help your child. And I'd been let down and that wasn't happening. I then did quite a lot of media that day. Obviously, media were like interested in this. Um, and then I was on um, ITV lunchtime news. Um, and that's when Sajid Jaffe came into the House of Commons to say that Alfie would be issued with his licence um, because, again, of the media pressure. And Nick Heard actually phoned me and said, which I thought was very nice of him, he said, I'm really sorry that it's taken so long, but today you and I have changed history. And I'll never forget that. Because I was like, that's good. That's really kind of him actually to say that to me. Because, you know, he, I was, ter- you know, I was terrified of speaking to these people. But I, you know, I did it for my son, and he, and he actually accepted that. And he said, you know, in a way, good for you, which I, I was quite proud of. Um, so he got the doctors were sent the schedule one license. They then wrote a prescription. We got the first batch in on the first time I brought it in with John from the, the importer on the seventh of July, two thousand and eighteen, which was. A historical event and ma- amazing. Yes, yeah, so this I'm really is this first first landmark mm. NHS prescription. Yeah, and you know, people. I, I remember having the time. People in the media thinking, "Oh, great! Well, that's Sorted. that's happened. Well, I do. That's happened yeah. now." No, to be clear, mm. Alfie still gets. Alfie still gets an NHS pres- prescription. He still gets yeah. his. And what? So what's happened to all the other children? Because you say his condition is very rare, but there are. I understand. I did a podcast with Mike Barnes, and mm. he. he he was estimating thousands and thousands of children that could benefit oh, yeah. from the medication. Mm. So what what's happened? What happens with all of their prescriptions or non-existent well, prescriptions? Well, um, when the law changed on the first of November two thousand and eighteen, you know, as as we've said, I was you know I was elated. I was like, I can't believe that you know. And there were other families lobbying as well. Um, you know, we as a team, you know, we made this happen, and it was I was really proud of that and. I was really proud of what we'd achieved and I thought, well, that's great. Other children like Alfie will get medical cannabis. The reality is, is that that hasn't happened. Uh, The British Paediatric Neurology Association, who is a a membership group for paediatric neurologists in the UK, issued guidance actually before the law changed saying that there wasn't enough evidence of safety with uh, full extract cannabis oil. THC is known to cause damage to the growing brain, which... I'm yet to see that evidence. I'm yet to see that study. There's been one study done in teenage boys smoking high strength THC in America and it can exacerbate mental health problems if you use high strength THC. You know, we're not talking about this. And again, it's really confused. I think the problem is, is that doctors aren't trained in the endocannabinoid system um, when they're medical students. They're not trained in cannabis as a medicine. So there's a lot of 
I would say, nonsense in some of this guidance, which isn't true. So when the BPNA issued that guidance, obviously that's going to put off doctors. It's not It's not law. I mean, our, our, our legislation in this country is very good. We have, you know, you are able, if you're on the specialist register, to prescribe medical cannabis for any condition. You know, that it's good, broad legislation, but the guidance is so restrictive that doctors are just terrified. And actually, NICE have now issued guidance that says there isn't enough evidence because they look at randomised controlled trials only there's only epidiolex the cbd isolate that's been put through those, those sort of tests it's very difficult to put a whole plant cannabis through a randomized controlled trial because you can't patent the plant so no if, if people spend millions on trials they can't patent the end product so they're not going to do that you know this is a commercial enterprise that's what we have to remember so that's why we ha- we're in this big problem because doctors, trusts, medical directors don't feel confident to allow their doctors to prescribe a medicine that's, that's a special, that's unlicensed, that hasn't got randomised control trials. But the reason it hasn't got randomised control trials is because it's been prohibited, because there's no randomised control trials, because people won't pay for them because they can't be patented. So there's lots of reasons why... Actually, we know that 165 million people throughout the world use medical cannabis every day. We would know by now if it was the next phalidomide. Sorry, phalidomide. You know, we'd know that we know if it was really dangerous. If it's used properly, if it's used in the right ratios, if it's used by clinicians who are trained, it's very safe, much safer than a lot of pharmaceuticals that are given to children every day who that are actually are off-label and don't have randomised control trial. That's why I get cross about it, because it's quite hypo- hypocritical. So you must have, this kind of ignorance, you must have had it from the medical profession, but also from, did other parents understand what you were what you were doing you know because because i think we all we've all we've all um grown up with as you said earlier about this you see it as a as a a kind of naughty street Mm. drug so to change your mind and thinking about it as this very important medicine it Mm. can be quite difficult because we all we all had that we all had the same propaganda i think so did did other parents react strangely to it ever or um I think parents of epileptic children are very supportive because they are desperate and they've tried most of them have, you know, children with refractory epilepsy. There's about 23,000 children like that in this country. So all those families are suffering. They've all tried the pharmaceutical. So I think they're very open. Um, my family's been very supportive and, and my very close friends. Some people that I know, I think, <laughs> think that I'm some sort of drug pusher. <laughs> And have made comments and stuff. But I just think it's lack of education. And that's why for me now, my my role, as far as I see it, is to, to support educating doctors um, with Mike through the Medical Cannabis Clinician Society, which I think is really important because doctors don't get that training. And the only way we're going to empower doctors to make those really important decisions is by empowering them with education. So I'm doing that, but also supporting families and carers and the public to understand what cannabis is and how it works as a medicine and how it's actually incredibly safe. And if you look at the, you know, the statistics of asking the public about medical cannabis, I think it's 85% the last study I looked at of, of the public support the use of medical cannabis as a medicine. So I don't necessarily think the public are what we need to win over. I think it's MPs. You know, I've received emails from MPs. One most recently went on Alfie's two-year anniversary. I sent an email to all the cabinet and I had one reply from Dominic Raab, which was a generic reply calling me Bridget so it said dear Bridget which I thought was quite funny but the first uh, paragraph said 
It is scientifically proven that cannabis causes mental and physical harm and the destruction of our communities. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, we're up against that. <laughs> That's the problem. I this mean, was, This was Dominic Raab. Yeah, and it, I shouldn't laugh, but it is laughable. It's laughable when you've got MPs in power in our cabinet making decisions about whether children should have access to a medicine on the NHS who think that because that's just not true you know that isn't true even in the recreational use of cannabis it's not true it's a very small amount of people that get harmed by even through that way but I'm not talking about that way I'm talking about medical use of cannabis it's very different and I think until we educate our MPs until we educate the people in power in the NHS and in NICE and you know all those people need education they're coming from a position of stigma and fear and that's never going to be a good thing and in the middle of it you have children who are very seriously ill and at the moment all the families that I know the only way they can access medical cannabis is through private prescription so you have now all these families fundraising every month thousands of pounds to try and keep their children well all the children I know that are on medical cannabis their seizures have improved their cognition has improved they're not going into hospital between them they're probably saving the NHS hundreds of thousands of pounds every month because they're children aren't in hospital and yet the people that make these decisions think that that's acceptable that it's acceptable that these families have very seriously or children through covid they haven't been able to fundraise in a social setting you know they are being persecuted and they're already in a terrible state where they struggle to get respite they struggle to get social workers they struggle to get support or mental health support for their families and now they found a medicine that works for their children and they have to fundraise for that too and i just think it's the persecution of some of the most vulnerable people and families in our society and I think that especially, you know, Secretary of State for Health, Matt Hancock, should hold his head in shame because they shouldn't have made this legal drug if they weren't going to allow access to it. And they have the power to do that. They have the power to educate doctors. They have the power to promote it. They have the power to make sure that access is available through trust. And they don't do that. They don't do anything to help these people. And it's disgraceful. I think you're right with fear and stigma, but with with and stigma we understand it's what it's what we've talked about. But fear, what what is it that they're afraid of? This is what I've been asking myself. I think they're they're in fear that people are going to be walking the streets as zombies or something. I think they think they they, they don't want to be they don't want to be the the politician that says yes. Ushered in this yeah. terrible Sodom and Gomorrah yeah. where drugs are legal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. I know and and. What I get really upset about is they don't listen to people like me. They don't listen to patients. They don't listen to parents. You know, we have a situation at the moment where 1.3 million people are using cannabis illegally in this country for medical use, for people with MS, for people with MND, for people with Parkinson's or cancer pain or epilepsy. That's disgraceful. That's disgraceful to criminalise people who have chronic lifelong conditions. It's not good enough, but as you say, I think it's about... You know, people just not having the guts to go, do you know what? I think this might be a good idea. I think this mm. might be good to help people. And I would say as well, I've been in A&E many times and there has never been anyone in there who's taken cannabis and become violent. There's been people in there who are drunk, <laughs> who mm. are causing real trouble for people, who the security guards are there, the police are there. We're trying to deal with our child having seizures and there's drunk people walking everywhere on a Saturday night you know and yet alcohol is freely available everywhere and licensed and actually it's probably the one of the most dangerous drugs available (laughs) and you can and you can go and get oxycontin from your gp no problem at all which Uh, you know you know we're quite 
quite frightened about that. We should be frightened about that drug. Exactly. And I've been asked before by journalists, oh, you know, has your son ever got stoned? And I was like, not on cannabis, but he's been stoned on clobazam. He's been stoned on uh, midazolam. He's been stoned on steroids. He's off. I mean, I've got videos of him on steroids where he is so aggressive and violent. And my partner's six foot three. He's, you know, this, a rugby player. He's a big guy. My son's going to be like that. And so it's okay for me to fill him through the steroids and allow him to beat me up. <laughs> it's not okay, you know. And I think that's the biggest problem is that there is such a big fear and stigma about it that people are making decisions that are not right for patients. And and actually what will happen is if people can't afford private prescriptions, they will go to the black market. And in the black market, you don't know what you're buying. You don't know what's in it. You don't know what pesticides or, you know, it's been made in someone's kitchen. It's not good enough. That's, you know, it's, it's criminalising people it's putting people at risk and actually if we made it regulated and medically available to people it would shut it could shut the black market down and surely we want that you know we don't want criminals to be selling god knows what to people you know we want it to be safe i talked about this with mike barnes and i think he was saying what we all need to be doing anyone who needs it for whatever the condition but particularly obviously parents with children like this is to keep pushing the nhs because what you sound like you didn't do is ever take know for an answer but I think most people and this is this is very understandable because it's kind of how we're raised is the doctor says something and you go mm. oh, okay then that's yeah. kind of because the doctor has yeah. the last word mm. but on this it's something that through no fault of their own they're not they're not exactly. educated exactly and I and, think that's what we have to remember and I've I've, I've yeah. since since I've had the conversation with my own doctors and they don't they don't know anything. No. And they about. shouldn't prescribe anything that they don't know anything about. That's the thing. You know, we, we don't want our doctors to be going, oh, yeah, you can have a prescription of this and I don't know anything about it. What we need to do is educate our doctors. And that's how the government could help. You know, Matt Hancock could tomorrow say we're going to put a training programme on the endocannabinoid system in, in you know, health uh, healthcare students work you know that could happen but he chooses not to do that so you know that's what we need to work on you're absolutely right there there is a real problem with um access and and what we would ask everyone is to go to their doctor and talk to them about it push them for it make doctors realize that this is wanted i set up a support group called medcansupport.co.uk um with another parent called matt hughes who's got a child with epilepsy and that again is a place for parents and carers to go to support you know them with their understanding because if med, you're in medcan sorry medcan support med, medcan support dot co dot uk um, and that gives it's a website there and we do talks with doctors throughout the world who are prescribing for children and, and adults and scientists who know about cannabis because the way we feel is that if you empower people then they can have those conversations and as you say you know we've been we've been brought up especially generations older than us that doctors are gods that they know everything and if they don't know about it then it doesn't exist and actually that's not true they're professional people who get things wrong sometimes i've i've witnessed that before you know like we all are we get we make mistakes we're human beings and i think you know i have a lot of respect for doctors but i also think that they're not immune to making mistakes or not knowing things and that's what as parents we have the right to say to them well actually no this is something that I'm really interested in doing and this is what I want to do and I have you know if I'd have been fighting for myself (laughs) I wouldn't be here you know I wouldn't have done it but I'm fighting for my child it's different you know 
I know that I'm right and I've proved that time and time again. Without sounding arrogant, I'm not trying to be, I'm not arrogant. I'm just saying that as his mother, like I'm sure any other mother listening to this, we know our children. We know what's best for our children inside and out. And I think sometimes doctors forget that. And, you know, I was very lucky that we had doctors around us that did recognise that we did know what's best and they supported us a lot. Okay, well, that's fantastic. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. Alfie's doing so much better now. And if people so people can keep pushing their their GPs, they can go to medcansupport.co.uk. Yes, yeah. And on Twitter you are I'm at Han Seizure Mum. Han Seizure Mum. Yeah, and Alfie's Hope is our campaign. We have a Facebook page, I have Instagram. Um so yeah, people can contact me through that as well. Um yeah, so thank you. Amazing. Hannah Deacon, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. It's been really good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks again to Hannah Deacon. You can find out more about the work she's doing along with Professor Mike Barnes to spread awareness of medical cannabis at mapletreeconsultants.co.uk and Hannah on Twitter is, as she said, it's Han Seizure Mum, H-A-N Seizure Mum. Thanks very much. (laughs) 